you are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of Passing. Pardon me, I don't mean to stare, but I think I know you. Claire? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to find out the history of the blonde you've brought along. She's a girl from Chicago I used to know. Princess from Chicago. Things aren't always what they seem. Bobby Dan. Lots of people pass all the time. It's easy for a Negro to pass for white. I'm not sure it'd be so simple for a white person to pass for color. So you haven't ever thought to? What? You ever thought of passing? No, why should I? Now I have everything I've ever wanted. This is my husband, John Bellew. Does he know? You dislike Negroes, Mr. Bellew. No, 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 not at all. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> Extraordinarily beautiful. I suppose. Your life is perfect. Have you ever thought of what you'd do if John found out? I'd do what I want more than anything right now. I come up here to live with you. You think they'd be satisfied being white? Who's satisfied being anything? Passing for something or other. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for Passing, and the story is as follows. Irene Redfield, a refined upper-class 1920s woman, finds breezy refuge from a hot summer day in the grand tea room of New York City's Drayton Hotel. Across the room, she spots a blonde woman staring her down. Irene wants to steal away, but before she can, Claire Kendry rushes over to stop her. It turns out the two were in high school together, and while both are African-American women who pass as white, they have chosen to live on opposite sides of the color line. Now, their renewed acquaintance threatens them both. The film is starring Tessa Thompson, Ruth Nega, Andre Holland, Alexander Skarsgård, and Bill Camp. It is written and directed by Rebecca Hall, and joining me here today for this podcast review, I have Nicole Ackman. Hi, everyone. Lauren LaMagna. Hello, hello. Evo Day. Hello. And welcome back to the show as a guest here today from cupofsoulshow.com, Kathia Woods, everybody. Hi, nice to be here. Yes, very, very nice to have you. I wanted to have you on here specifically, Kathia, because I've seen that you are a very big advocate for this movie and have been banging the drum for it since its uh, world premiere at Sundance earlier this year, which is where I saw it and a few others I know also got a chance to see it uh, early. And it has come back, obviously, at a few film festivals and now is streaming on Netflix for the whole world to see. And it's had a very interesting journey uh, being a directorial debut for uh, actress Rebecca Hall, someone that we're all very, very familiar with here. And also um, really presenting uh, what could have been a very mishandled topic if it had not been in more capable hands. So I'm very interested in talking about this literary adaptation, the performances, and all the craft that went into bringing this to the screen. So, Kathia, you're the guest here. I would like to start off with you. General thoughts. What did you think of Passing? I think it's it's a great film. It's a beautiful film. But more importantly, it it is very relevant to what is going on in our country today, how Black women are perceived, colorism, 
And the fact that, you know, here we are, many of us still have family members that we've lost due to them feeling as though they have no, had no other choice but to pass in order to have rights that they weren't granted as people of color. I've talked about what in my own family, my mother being biracial and how she is on the lighter scale and my aunt being on the darker and how their experiences have been night and day as black women. And then also on, on my in-law's side, uh, they had a family member that passed and they were living in the same town and could not interact for fear of um, getting the other person uh, in trouble, uh, getting the person killed. And it wasn't until the 1970s, they slowly started reconnecting. Wow. All right. Well, let's hear next from Lauren LaMagna. Lauren, what did you think of Passing? I really like Passing. So I was introduced to this book, the Nella Larson's um, 1929 book, in one of my English classes at university. I took an American Lit class. And if anyone here listening is in college, I please, please take an American literature class or take an English class. You will get exposed to great stories and great artists. And I loved this book. It's a really fast read. It's a short book, but I loved how many themes and tropes and questions that Nella Larson put into it. And I really do love contemporary um, literature because it's she wasn't writing about a past in her time. She was a 1929 woman writing about 1929. It wasn't someone looking back at the past. So I think that's also an interesting thing. So because of its so many themes and so many questions and the ambiguity of the book, it's in a really interesting position for adaptation because it is totally dependent on what the adaptator is drawn to in the book. It could have been a straightforward drama. It could have been a period piece. It could have leaned towards more romance. It could have been more of a thriller. It really could have been so many different versions of what we have right now. So I was really interested to see what Rebecca Hall saw in the book because, again, it is so... It's vague in its beauty, which I love the ambiguity of it. So I was always interested to see it. And I liked, I was interested in what Rebecca Hall was seeing. And I really did like what I got. I think her adaptation is great. I am much more a fan of her screenwriting as I am in her directing. But I think both are great. And I think um, Ruth Nega is obviously amazing in her role. But I think Tessa Thompson is exceptional in hers as well. And I just love that they talk about the themes that Rebecca Hall is a little bit more blunt in the story, which works in a visual medium. And I think it also does play with, you know, the ambiguity of the other themes as well. And I think it's a really good, solid adaptation and debut in screenwriting and directing from Hall. All right. Evo Day, we're up to you. So fortunately, I've seen a lot of movies this year that I've been a fan of. Um, I'm really excited for this year as a film in general. I would say a lot of films I've liked and then but they've always had maybe one little thing that's prevented them from being my number one. That's really maybe the cinematography is a little weak or the script or the director's voice isn't really apparent. And I have absolutely no notes on this film in the negative. I was so blown away by this movie. It just instantly captured me and it left me with such a 
amazing feeling afterward, not necessarily a good feeling, but just such a, a wash of feeling at the end of it. I think the fact that this is a directorial debut is just amazing because there's such a clear voice to it. There's such a clear mastery of the camera and of storytelling. I am particularly absolutely in love with the use of black and white cinematography. I think it's so deliberate. It's so precise. It really adds to the story. It doesn't feel detrimental in any way. It's just, it's just a film. I just find, think it's, it's poetry in motion, and I'm, I'm giddy by how much I liked it. Wow, that's great. All right, and Nicole Ackman. So I've been really looking forward to this film since it was first announced because I'm a huge Tessa Thompson fan, and I particularly love to see her do any sort of period film because uh, that is, you know, sort of my preferred genre. I will be perfectly honest and say I am part of the way through reading the book passing. Grad school, particularly grad school for history, is not particularly conducive to reading anything else. (laughs) But I am working my way through the book and I am fascinated by the way that Rebecca Hall brought it to the screen because it is a book that is very internal for a lot of it um, and very much deals in subtleties. And I think that she did a, a good job of bringing that to the screen. I've got some issues with the movie. I do think that the pacing has some problems uh, and I don't think that it's perfect by any means, but I do think that it's a really delicate and thoughtful look at a very complicated topic. And I also think that, you know, Ruth Nega is fantastic. She's giving like Daisy Buchanan vibes in the like best way possible for this character. But I I think that people aren't talking enough about how great Tessa Thompson is in this role because she gives a very nuanced performance and and is able to actually bring across a lot of that sort of internal thought that I think is is what makes up so much of the book. Uh, She's able to just let that like play out across her face, which I think is incredible. So I've watched it twice now and and I do think that uh, there's some really good work in it, even if even if I do have some issues with it. So I've seen Passing Now three times, actually. Um, First time was at Sundance, uh, where I watched it virtually at home. Second time was in a theater at the New York Film Festival. And third time was on Netflix, most recently in preparation for this podcast review. And I can say that with each passing viewing, no pun intended, I have grown to appreciate this movie more and more and more. Uh, the first time I saw it at Sundance, and I remember a couple of people talking about this. You know, Nicole, you mentioned the pacing. That that was something that I do remember uh, being a little bit of a drawback for me the first time I saw it. But then I got told by some people at Netflix that they had gone back and they had tightened it up a little bit, but just like frames, essentially, just to make it flow a little bit better. Like no seeds were changed or nothing was drastically taken out. It was just more like, let's not hold on to for this shot for four seconds. Let's hang on to it for three seconds. You know, like we're talking very, very, very minute decisions here. Uh, so you wouldn't be able to notice, but you could feel it while watching it. And seeing this in a movie theater with the sound design, which I think is impeccable, the cinematography, which I think is impeccable, it really brought the experience to a whole other level for me. Uh, the themes and the performances were already there. Those were those were aspects that I already recognized were fantastic. But just as a cinematic experience, this really had tremendous staying power in a way that really snuck up on me. And 
at, at, at a brisk 99 minutes long, too, it doesn't really require much of the viewer to allow for its complexity to really come to the forefront. I mean, it really impressed the hell out of me how much this movie was able to pack in and stuff that, you know, admittedly, not my experience. I have very little, little, little comprehension of some of the stuff that's being touched upon in this movie by any means. So for me, I just found it all the more fascinating to kind of just lean in, listen, observe, and process uh, the information that was being conveyed. And I was just utterly captivated by it the whole way through. I want to actually first start off by talking about these performances here, uh, not just from Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega, but also Andre Holland, Bill Camp, Alexander Skarsgård, who... God, when is the next time he's going to be cast in a charming good guy role again? <laughs> can we just give up to Alexander? Thank you for taking these roles that I can imagine no one wants. No, no one. God bless. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, the, the cast in this, I think, is really, really great across the board here. Um, you know, I remember the first time I saw it, Ruth Nega was the, the standout because she's the one who is more uh, animated and vivid in her performance while Tessa Thompson is giving a more internalized uh, performance. So it's not one that maybe is noticeably apparent on the first viewing or maybe it is for some and, you know, that's just people's taste. But I have to say I agree with everything that's been said here that – that performance is, I think, equally as good as what Ruth is delivering. It's just they're operating in different registers is all. I have to say that one of the things that really gets me about Tessa Thompson's performance is that uh, that opening scene whenever they're at the like the hotel restaurant or whatever. Um, in the book, whenever you read it, you get the fact that she's concerned that, you know, here come here's this woman staring at her. And what does she know? What does she realize? You know, she could out her and that would be really inconvenient and, and whatever. And in the movie, we aren't able to sort of get any of that because it's all just unfolding visually. And yet the way that Tessa Thompson is able to give us that sense of anxiety and that sense of sort of foreboding and why she's so concerned that this woman is staring at her, I think is really remarkable. I think that she's someone who is very good at like the nonverbal side of acting. Um, obviously she's, she's great whenever she's delivering our lines too and stuff, but I think that she is someone who does a really excellent job at just sort of using her facial expressions to craft what's going on in a person's internal world. And I think that that's so impressive. I would disagree. I looked at that. I figured out in 30 seconds, she's like, oh, let me get out of here before this white woman figures out that I may not be white. Mm. So that's why she was really hastily grabbing her bags. Absolutely. The angst, the anxiety. I mean, when she got up, it was all in her face. Like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like there's a there's an element of panic that sets oh, in. And I, it's not it's not her space. And we have to remember in 1930s, even in, in New York, you know, what was going on in America, Black people were getting lynched for the minor of minor of things. And her being a woman by herself in a predominant white space, that is 100% fright, angst. And when, she, the, when, when Ruth started speaking, like her eyes are like, I need this woman to shut up so I can exit. <laughs> but luckily... 
you know, it turns out to be something else, but it's all right there in her face and in her body movement, even though she's not saying anything, because it's something that as black people, even if in today, when you are the only black person in a space, the first thing, or when you don't see other people of color, other black people, first thing you do is look for someone else that's black. I can tell you that 100%. And it gives you a sense of relief. And I'm not saying that we endure that type of fright, but it's always there when you're like, okay, I, I have to move differently in this space because I don't have the numbers on my side. I don't have the support. I can't move. It's, it's what we call today code switching. I didn't necessarily yeah. have the same interpretation of that scene as I was watching it because I haven't read the book. So I wasn't really, I didn't really know that for the first sort of few scenes where it's just Tessa Thompson that she was intentionally passing. I thought that she was kind of just trying to be demure. Like she wasn't trying to draw attention to herself. So when she was in the restaurant and there was someone looking at her, I I did think that, oh, she's panicking because she's worried that she's in trouble. I didn't really get that it was because she was pretending to be white in that moment. So that really only occurred to me later when the kind of final events of the film take place. But I, I did was able to grasp the fear that she was feeling. And I understood why she was feeling the fear, but in a kind of slightly different interpretation of it. I got the, the fear and the anxiety, too. And I'm going to probably chuck that off to the book. But I'm also going to put a lot of credit on Rebecca Hall's screenwriting and directing she never once as a director loses the point of view that what they are doing is very dangerous this isn't something that they're just doing because they want to do it even though it'll make their lives easier to pass whether for Irene she just wants to like get her child a toy or make life easier for herself or get better gifts and for Claire actually passing like fully but never once does the audience forget that what they are doing is so incredibly dangerous that it can cost them their lives. And I think it's important that as an audience, we never forget the fear and the danger that these people are going through, even on a subconscious level. And I think that is a good testament to her action as a director and as a writer to make sure that we always have that point of view and that idea in our minds that, yeah, they're doing this, but this is also very dangerous and this is, can turn very bad very quickly. You can also see her by her scalp. Like when she's sitting there, she's doing exactly what I just said. She's like, okay, there's that woman sitting at that table. There's that couple. She, and then she's also inadvertently kind of like, where are the exits? Because there was no one black that came into that, not even like the help, more or less. Do you know what I mean? So she's definitely like, okay, my window of opportunity is not very long because someone else may come in here that, that may, you know, notice something or whatever, but her senses were on go from the moment she went in there. I also think that scene happened, had a undertone of her kind of representing her queer desire that she obviously was kind of looking at uh, Claire before she recognized her. You could kind of see her glancing at her leg and kind of smiling to herself. I also took that from that scene. I don't know if anyone else did. Well, I mean, I think that that's a subtext in the movie that they're clearly uh, playing with and doesn't really... I wouldn't say that it's as pronounced, but it's there. Oh, but yeah, it's definitely mm-hmm. there. Yeah. There's definitely like the passing, like straight passing as well. Like they don't dwell on it, but it's there because like, for example, I know there's that one moment especially where uh, she lets Claire go out for the evening while she stays back home and Claire gives her like a kiss on the cheek uh, saying goodbye for the evening and the shot just holds on it long enough that 
you really do get the sense of this affection uh, between the two of them. And it goes back to this I, I kind of what we're talking about here and what we're talking about for I, Irene or Reedy in this movie is this identity crisis that she's having. There's a that now I'm just thinking about this now. The film obviously has notes of inspiration from films made at the time that this film takes place. Not to the extent of like something like Mank, where it's literally copied like in that style. But um, when I think about that, like I think modern viewers would now see that kind of brief kind of lingering kiss that they have as a sort of romantic gesture. There is scores of films where two female characters, two young female characters will kiss on the mouth and they're just, and they're literally just friends. And modern queer audiences kind of watch those scenes and retrospectively be like, oh, if only these characters had actually been gay. But it's just kind of the, the, the behavior of the time was, you know, you kissed your female friend on the mouth hmm. and that wasn't weird. That's interesting, yeah. I think there's literally clips on YouTube, like compilations of females of like women kissing in old Hollywood films because it wasn't really considered queer at the time, but current audiences are kind of retrospectively using it as a sort of form of representation. Well, regardless of which, though, the film never like gets it necessarily like explicit uh, between no. the two of them being any in any kind of a relationship or anything. Uh, you know, you get the sense that there is genuine love there uh, between uh, Irene and her husband, Brian, and let's face it, Claire and John, it's a whole other different story right there. But I would argue that Irene is definitely jealous of what Claire has, and Claire is jealous of what Irene has, and neither one of them are happy with their existing lives. So it's interesting how they each want what the other has, it's not ideal either way, you know? So it's like, it's like in the end, instead of just swapping our lives, we might as well just go off together, <laughs> you know? Oh, what a nice ending that would have been. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's yes and no. I feel Irene is annoyed with Claire, but mm -hmm. she does yes. love her because this is why I say Tessa deserves to be in the race for best actress because what she has to do is harder. Ruth had the easier part she, to be extroverted. What Tessa yeah. had to be yeah. is so internal. And that's why she didn't respond to her letters. Because when, you know, when Claire comes over the house unannounced, number one, that's a no-no. You don't show up to black people's house unannounced. That's just <laughs> number one. Number two is she's like... It, we can't have it come around that we're hosting some white lady. Like, that is also something, like, we, we interact, but there is a decorum here. And then number three, Tessa is like, I don't play black. I live black. I have a black husband. I have these black kids. We live in this very black part of town. Yes, we're upper class black people, but we're still black. You can't yeah. just come down here because you're bored with your life and, and, and you, you went to the other side and you realized... You know, or your husband is working and you feel alone in this hotel room. You can't come down here and play black because yeah. it's going to get me, my family, my kids in a world of hurt. And that's basically what she's saying in their meeting. And Claire being so like a little bit airheaded is like, 
oh, you didn't respond to my letters and you, you know, essentially you want to be like, chick, are you dumb? Like, do you not understand like the, the, the merits of what is going on? Because for Claire, it's like, I reunited with my friends. I am with my friend. I want to resume that, that friendship. She's not thinking this all the way through. Like it's not a slumber party. Mm-hmm. It's just an annoying, I mean, and, and rightfully so. Cause I felt the same thing. Like watching it, I was like, I'm going to need this girl to get a catch a club. And even when I read the book, that's the same thing that, that, that I felt. I was like, Claire, have you been so lost on the other side that you don't get it's even when they talk about their kids, you know, and because Tessa's character is kind of like, well, you had this child, but DNA is still involved. She goes, no, mine is white. And she goes, mine is brown. And again, not picking up on certain things, but I definitely feel like that, that scene wasn't her. I think what Irene feels about Claire, obviously she loves her, but she's also annoyed that she's inserted herself into her family's life, especially into her husband's life. And because she has the social circle, she, she created this life for her, whether she likes it or not, but it's still a life that she's created. And here comes Claire just basically tumbling it all to pieces. Claire is also so desperate with reuniting with her culture. She's been in Chicago since she got married since she was 18. So she's been passing for this entire time. And when she comes back to New York and comes back to Harlem, she has this overwhelming sense of trying to come back to a community that she left. And it's now she's having this like weird in one world and out of the other world. So she has this desperation to come back to this community where Irene is like, you can do both at the same time. That's not how this works. But then Irene is also jealous because even though she only passes occasionally when for minor inconveniences, she's also, you know, trying to be the perfect wife and the perfect person in high black society where even though Claire is hiding her racial identity, Claire is Claire. Like she is a hundred percent herself minus the passing. And I think that stirs jealousy and a little bit of hatred in Irene because this woman is so herself and so bubbly and so attracted to other people that makes Irene question because she's doing all these things that society is telling her to do. And yet she's still not happy. And I think that Irene sees how people respond to Claire and how people are drawn to her. And that's what I mean with, you know, I think that Claire is a character and particularly the way that Ruth Nigga plays her, who is very similar in many ways to like Daisy Buchanan from the great Gatsby. And that here's a character who is incredibly self-centered and is not thinking through the way that her actions are affecting anyone around her. And yet she's so magnetic and it's so hard to fully hate her because you can't take your eyes off of her. And I think that that's sort of that dichotomy is what Irene is dealing with. And I do think it's really masterful the way that, you know, Tessa Thompson is able to bring across how many conflicting feelings Irene has towards Claire. Yeah, the film is as much one about obsession as it is about anything else. You know, I'm I'm listening to all of this and I and I'm wondering. So, um, do, we, do we think that Irene is ashamed of being black? No. Mm-hmm. no. The only reason no. why I asked no. though is I was yeah. thinking about the scene that she has uh, with uh, her husband Brian, played by Andre Holland, in this, where he's trying to tell his uh, sons, their sons, about what is happening to black people. In, in New York uh, with them being lynched and murdered and she is trying to shield 
her kids from that information. And also based on, you know, the fact that she is passing for uh, these little things here and there, I'm just like hearing what everyone's saying. And I'm wondering, like, what does everyone think of that? Did, Did they think that or disagree with it? I think oh, that's I think just so a right. fairly maternal instinct to shield your kids from that kind of terrible information. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. think it's a form of shame. I think that also really speaks to the fact that they are these this sort of upper class family. They're high, yeah. Um, and that's you know, we see that Irene is a character who's very demure, she's very polite. Um, and that's not something that she necessarily wants her young children to be discussing or learning about yet um they live in a in a and i think that's part of it too is that she's created this bubble for her family in which mm-hmm. they live and it's a very genteel world and that's i think part of her aversion to claire as well as that claire is coming in and threatening to burst that bubble and irene doesn't want anything to sort of mess with this world that she's created and and i also think that it's partially too that um you know we see that irene and her husband have a somewhat difficult relationship uh they're not exactly on the same page about things and i think that that's sort of one more thing that he is telling them despite the fact that she doesn't want him to do this and the fact that he keeps continuing to do it makes her like more averse to it happening i mean it's it's yes and no it is a complex thing that black parents have to decide when do you burst your child's innocence most mm-hmm. of the time, you don't get a chance to decide that because someone in the side, society decides the other your child. And at that very moment, you have to explain your child in some weird way that although there's nothing wrong with them, there are people in society that are going to look at them and other them simply because of the color of their skin. There's no, there's no conversation that hurts more than when you're a child. And for a lot of us, as our kids before they're even five years old. You need to have and you try to break their little heart, but they're... Once that happens, it's a road of no return. And for Irene, she is trying to prevent that. She's trying to prevent that because she knows once that discussion, that door is open, it is hard to come back. It's hard to have to keep the optimism. It is hard to shield your child. Whereas rightfully so, Brian is walking the world as a black man, which is even harder than especially during that time. He's a successful black man. Super successful, probably more successful than a lot of the people that other him, who probably is another reason why he has more challenges. And he is trying to explain to Irene that, especially them raising black boys, you have to somehow prepare them for this. There is no shielding from this. There is no party. There is no school. There is no outfit that you can put on them that is going to avert this disaster. So in his mind, he's like, I'd rather them hear from us, us have it here, than God forbid they come out. And I believe there's, there is an incident where one of their kids is, and, and he's like, we have to have this discussion. And the kids also are like, rightfully so, I wanna understand why they're doing this. So it's, it is a very, it's, I look at it as two different parenting styles. I don't necessarily think it's a conflict from them as husband and wife. But I get it as a mother, and I also understand his point of view where he's like, you know, them walking around with their head in the sky can harm them more than them being informed. And they're in, you know, uh, and he basically is like, how do you throw all these dinners and raise money for this cause and raise money for this cause? But at the end, don't understand the reason we have to do that 
is because of this. So we were, we were talking a lot about here about um, the performances and how those performances are given life based on the strong writing and the themes that are coming across here and how everyone is able to uh, portray that. You know, one of her supporting performance in this that I found to be very interesting uh, is one of our favorite character actors, uh, Bill Camp, who plays uh, Irene and Brian's friend Hugh uh, during a, a party that they go to, uh, high society types, everybody's dancing. And I, I found that scene also to be a very interesting one just in regards to the dialogue that is being had there uh, because Hugh is a character who's very, very comfortable with Irene and is maybe perhaps even a little too comfortable to the point where uh, he doesn't fully understand and can never understand some of the complex issues that she is uh, going through. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the this is the whole oxymoron, right? It's the cotton club. Everybody on stage is black. Everybody on the audience is white. The same people don't want black people in their house, but they can't wait to go all the way down to Harlem and see them on stage. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's it's very daunting. At the same time, while in his mind, he's he's probably like, he is, and also let's be very clear, he's hanging out with a very specific type of black people. These right. are educated people, these are upper middle class people, that's what they have in common, class. And, and also it's like entertainment, you know, let's come down and see how the black people live. and. Their mu- you know, how he was talking about the dancing and all of those things. All of that stuff is um, as uncomfortable as it may sound, hearing someone talk about other people like that. Is, it's entertainment. It's, 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 it's more interesting to them to be friends with, with Claire and Brian and the rest of them than to hang out with their other fellow uh, rich white people. Because it's not as challenging for whatever word you want to say is. And he's... He's basically window shopping. And although I think he likes them and I think he is comfortable with them, it's like you said, though, uh, he may be super comfortable, but the black people know, okay, it's cool, we can party, but we know there are certain things we can't do. And uh, Alexander Skarsgård, very limited screen time in this movie, but also makes an impression, too, especially in that first scene where he's introduced to Irene. And, oh, my gosh, like that like that moment, for example, where uh, he says, you know, no, I hate black people. And Claire laughs. But then the way like Irene Tessa Thompson reacts when she laughs in the moment, like harder than you would actually expect. I mean, that that was a there's not many moments of levity so much in this movie, but uh, I guess like in a scene with that with that where there's so much tension, uh, it was nice to get a bit of a, a laugh a, a laugh out of that. Uh, but man, oh man, Skarsgård, like I said, he's always being cast in these uh, bad guy roles lately, and he just plays it so incredibly well, uh, so so well to the point that I I've uh, I just find him to be such a intimidating and absolutely terrifying uh, screen presence anytime I see him in something like this. Like he makes I great think- decisions in what he decides to act in. I think for I think for that scene in particular, the scene where the way that uh, Ruth reacts in that scene, there's something that Ruth Nega is doing with her face and her like physical reaction to her husband and the way he's speaking. So she's sort of 
she's almost making fun of Irene in that scene. She's almost kind of teasing her. And the way I just think that Ruth performs that scene so well. It's it's very subtle what she's doing. I just think that's a that's a very minute kind of piece of her performance that really stand stood out to me. Well, it's interesting because the blocking of the scene is she he's sitting down, she's standing above him with her like arm on her shoulder. And so he can only see her if he's looking up. And in a way, she is like kind of being like the puppet master to yes. Irene in the moment of like, oh, look what I could do. And haha, he has no idea. So there are all these glances that are happening there. And then when he like looks up at her, you could just see her face immediately change to appease him. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, Eve. It's really, really well done on her part in that scene. I also think that his performance is so good in this in that while he is very intimidating and obviously like he's spouting these like terrible things that he's saying, you also can see that like he has a certain almost charm to him. There's like a dark charm there that you can kind of see why when Claire was looking for a way out of her bad situation that she was in when she was like 18, why she was like, well, this guy will do, you know, he's not, like a it's he's not uh like a complete villain in terms of like you can't understand how Claire could live with him for all of this time. I think I think it's it's really nice that he is able to sort of keep it from just being like uh you know almost like comically bad. He's not mustache twisting. He's bad, but he's not a caricature of a bad person. No, not. not at all. Not at all. Um and and I'm curious to know too. I know this was touched upon a little briefly earlier, but I wanted to get more of a read on this from all of you. What did you guys think of Claire and Brian's chemistry together and how Irene started to interpret that as the story progressed? So I think their relationship could read as easily as they are flirting, they are having an affair, or it's all in Irene's head. I, I don't think it makes it clear or explicit you know in any way that actually heightens the tension of what's going on because the audience isn't sure in the same way that irene's not sure hello this is gary chachot welcoming you to check out the french history podcast our main show covers the history of france from the first humans until present if you liked mike duncan's the history of rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty culture and love we are exactly that we also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.
Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's important to know explicitly what's going on between the two of them. What's important to know is Tessa's reaction to that and the way she responds to what she is physically seeing. And I think it's a great performance on Tessa's back and that we feel uneasy about the situation now. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is in her head because her husband does is like, I don't I don't think of her that way. Do you know what I mean? that type of thing um right it's just again it's one of those things where i think someone said it earlier where claire has come in and kind of like blown up her oasis and you know she's talking to the maid getting very comfortable she's talking to the kids she's talking to the husband and you know for irene it's like she's doing too much like like you know what i mean she's just like what you know, and, and, you know, she really is like, uh, no, you know what I mean? But she's, because she's so proper, she doesn't know how to, um, she doesn't know how to convey that. Mm. She's not a chaotic person. She's not comfort. She's very passive aggressive. So yeah. she's looking at everything. And, and if she were like a confrontational person, she would say something to Claire, but instead it's like all in her head. Absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting. And then, Another thing I also wanted to touch upon here, uh, something that I'm really, really impressed by in this movie is the cinematography, the decision to shoot this in 4 by 3 Academy ratio, um, the way that this movie, being that it is shot in black and white, and how the characters are lit to not only tell the the story it needs to tell but also like have these themes come through in a visual way is something that i find to be a extraordinarily difficult to pull off and also um it's amazing that they pulled it off while main uh while maintaining the film's beauty because you know there's been a lot of black and white films this year but i think that this is actually one of the better ones that we've seen in terms of still frame visuals um you know you could freeze frame some of these shots here and they just look absolutely exquisite absolutely i mean i think i brought up on the belfast podcast that i didn't mind that that film was in black and white but it sort of felt thoughtless and it wasn't very well constructed whereas this one oh my god it's just beautiful it's just such an intelligent such a precise use of black and white and even just as yeah, as a form of visual storytelling, but just the just the scene, it's just so it's so stunning to look at. And there's a sense of I'm gonna try to pronounce this word correctly, verisimilitude that doesn't feel forced, but does feel very deliberate. Uh, Kafia, I, I want to hear from your point of view. You know, oftentimes I'm usually hearing uh, that so many cinematographers don't know how to light black people, and it's very rare that I see a lot of black critics uh, in praise of when cinematography does uh, get it right, if you will. And this is a movie where the highlights are intentionally blown out to make uh, Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negga's skin to be more pale than it actually is. So I was wondering like, what your thoughts were on that creative choice here and how that came through with the storytelling. I mean, I think it was a great choice because... Um, as Rebecca said, she didn't want people to focus on whether or not Ruth and Tessa were light enough to pass. She wanted them to focus on the story. 
And by them doing that, it took that out of the conversation. Do you know what I mean? I've mm-hmm. had a couple of people be like, well, now that one of them could pass. I was like, they're not supposed to fool us as black people. Like, we usually can tell when someone is like, you're like, mm, okay. You know what I mean? It's whether it's something small. I said, it's that idea is you're not fooling your fellow black people. You're fooling white people, especially at that time who have stereotypes of what black people look like. If you look at all the characters, you know, big lips, uh, nappy hair, um, you know, very voluptuous and things like that. And neither Claire or Tessa or a lot of black women around that time didn't fit that stereotype. You know, as I was like to say, once we left the continent, we ceased to be 100% African. We're the only group of people that had forced, you know, interrogation, so to say. So whatever this ideal is of what people thought a black person should look like based on what, you know, they found on the continent, that ceased to be decades ago, especially once you get into the 1930s. So there is no such thing as what a black person looks like. So I think that's really what she's saying. And um, just like when you look at Rebecca, you don't necessarily say, hey, she has black DNA in her, but we know she does. So that's Mm -hmm. the whole spiel. And I definitely feel like that shot where where Tessa looks up um, and she's sitting down and she looks up and she puts her drink order. It's beautiful. Because, you know, Tessa's very expressive eyes and the way her eyelashes were curled. And then you look at pictures of them in the clothes and everything in color. I don't necessarily feel as though this movie would have been as effective in color. So I think she makes very specific choices. Like when she's at home, it gets a little darker because now it's comfortable. So I really, I do like that, and I and I, I agree with a lot of my fellow critics. A lot of people don't know how to shoot black people. It's just, I don't know why in 2021 we're still doing that, but unfortunately we are where we are. But in this film, they got it right. And then also, too, I mentioned earlier, uh, the sound work in this film is also something that really took me by surprise. Um, one of the things that even from the very, very beginning of the film, uh, the way that the sound slowly creeps in the same way that the image uh, that we're seeing of the uh, Harlem Street with all the people's feet like walking across it, hearing people's voices uh, talking, how that all just kind of slowly comes into focus. Uh, there's a lot of very interesting sound work in this movie that is subtle, but really, really intricate and well done. And I think that these little things, like these little attention to detail goes a long way in making this movie, which admittedly has a very, very tiny budget when you really break it down. Like it made it feel like it was more expansive than it actually was. So in regards uh, to that as well, um, I'll also say I really, really enjoyed um, the score in this, uh, you know, the piano cues and everything else that was going on. But I'm going to stop with my uh, drolling here and I'm going to get to the part that I know everybody wants to uh, chat about right now. And that is the ending to passing. Uh, So I think for this part right here, we'll issue a spoiler warning. So if you have not seen the movie passing, turn off the podcast right now. You know that we all love the movie. I'm sure you can figure out our grades about it later or you can skip ahead to hear that portion of the podcast. But I really, really want to get everyone's thoughts on the ending here because I'll tell you, the first time I saw this, I I don't know what I saw. 
I, I actually like needed a moment to process it. I because I thought that I saw what I saw, but then I heard other people saying something different, and then I was like, maybe, maybe I should go back and rewind. But I didn't have time, so I didn't. And you know, months went on where I have to admit, like, I really did not know what the ending to this movie actually was. Uh, a, a rewatch really, really clarified it for me this time around that Irene puts her hand out, in my opinion, to protect Claire, but it inadvertently pushes Claire out the window. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's intentional. Okay. I think that it is purposely somewhat ambiguous in that you do have to question what just occurred, which I do think in some ways it's it's kind of funny that this ended up being a Netflix film because I feel like there's going to be a lot of people who rewind it immediately to watch the scene again mm-hmm. uh, and are happy that they can do that and are not seeing it. Like I saw it for my first time in a theater where I couldn't do that and I was like, Wait a second. Hold on. What did I just see? <laughs> my my feeling is that even though Irene might have intended to protect Claire, the fact that what has happened has happened, I think that's why Irene blames herself at the end. And she thinks that she had something to do with it. Like, I don't think she willingly pushed her out the window at all. I think she even maybe questions whether or not she yeah. did it. I don't even think she was thinking in that moment. That yeah. part of the ending of the book is a hundred percent vague and ambiguous. And it is a, it's one of those debates that you no know, students will write papers about. And I think this is the most blunt choice that Rebecca Hall has made in her adaptation process. And um, I think in her, in this version, I think Irene definitely did something. Was she consciously aware of what she was doing? That we don't know as well, maybe, I would say. But I think there was an action and I think she did something. And I don't think she was as aware as what she was in that moment. And it isn't until she gets downstairs and realizes what just occurred that things start hitting her. I was just wondering if we could go back a wee bit before the party. I was maybe wondering if there was an implication that Irene told Claire's husband where they were going to be because I can't really figure out how he would know otherwise if he was maybe if she maybe tipped him off Ooh, that's a good one I mean obviously she calls the house to sort of warn Claire so we know like and she doesn't end up speaking to her and then I'm, I was just, I, that, had, that thought has, has not really left my head. I don't think there's a way to prove it. I, no, I think it's just that random encounter that they have on the street. And he realizes in that moment that she's indeed black. No, I know. But how did he know where they were going to be that night? I mean, I guess he could have followed them. Yeah, that's what I think happened. I think he was, I think it's pieces. It's him running into Irene, her calling. Claire going out, something in him was like, something is not right. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. And I also think subconsciously, Irene isn't aware of what she did. I don't think it was oh, no. intentional. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, so it's just a series of very sad events. In a way, I think that cinematically speaking, now I, again, I think it her movement was kind of just instinctual and she didn't really know what she was doing. I think in terms of the story, you could almost see that she's trying to help Claire 
keep up her act of passing, you know, if the husband never fully is able to kind of fight her and, and, and divorce her and everything, she can kind of keep up the, the, the act for forever because she's, she's dead. She's dead. (laughs) We haven't really said it yet. I, I was thinking about that too, like in a way where what's meant to be an act of protection from uh, John, who's angrily coming towards Claire. Uh, there's a dual meaning behind that that move on Irene's part, where death is the only escape from the humiliation, from the pain, and God knows what else. He he. For all we know, he might have killed her. Well, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. in a way, it, it's like interesting how I, I say that, and yet you know she dies anyway. Uh, but at least it's at Irene's hand and not at the hand of uh, some angry white man. She is almost sort of, hmm, I'm trying to figure out how to word this. She is sort of helping maintain the status quo by turning it into an accident rather than a man kills his wife and then there's a whole hullabaloo. Like if it can just be an accident, we can kind of like, it can be swept under the rug. There doesn't have to be as much of an investigation into it. And then, I think it's worth mentioning, you know, I obviously re- watched this on Friday and then revisited it over the weekend to prepare for this conversation that there's two visual uh, prep uh, sort of foreshadowing. Foreshadows, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, and now it's obvious, but at the time you knew you wouldn't have known, you know, where the flower pot drops and yep. Claire says, should I go down, like to go get it? It's like, ooh. And then <laughs> later when she drops the white pot and she says, oh, yep. the only thing I had to do to get rid of it was just was just let it break. Like I didn't have to, I didn't even have to think about it. Ooh, that gives me chills now, now that I know. <laughs> so do we think she did it intentionally? No. No. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think she it, did it. I, I think that she's not I sure think she pushed. I, I didn't, I always thought there was a push, but um, did I think that, um, I don't know. And then there's like the, the idea of like, you know, she's, Claire's kind of getting caught in this situation, so she is kind of screwed. And there is like this conversation, like, is yeah, is Irene saving her in this way, or is which is like still like messed up? But I definitely think there's a push. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but I think in this adaptation, I don't think it's an intentional push. I think the thing is too, in some ways, it doesn't matter as much whether or not it was intentional. What like whether or not the push is actually the thing that does it. I think what really matters is the fact that it feels like Irene herself can't figure out if she's the reason that it happened. The way that the Tessa's performance in the moments afterwards, where she gets down to the, to the ground and she has the kind of moment with Andre Holland is just, Oh God, it's such a a power. It's, it's such an indicator of, of Tessa Thompson's talent. And in that in that just kind of she makes like these noises in her throat almost and they're they're just they're just chilling yeah i think uh, tessa thompson's uh acting in that scene is pretty phenomenal all around and it, it really lingers with you long after the movie is over um i couldn't stop thinking about the the ending to this film after i had seen it and e- even though i admittedly like i said earlier i didn't really even know what the hell had happened <laughs> you know i was like still trying to figure it out uh, but I didn't have time because it, I think it was like number 27 of 
you know, 50-something Sundance movies that I saw. So I had to move on to the next one <laughs> during that virtual uh, screening. But when I saw it a second time, uh, I was really, really awestruck by the way that it's shot, the way that it's edited, the way that it's all just acted, handled by Rebecca Hall. It's like I said, like I said earlier, um, every inch of this movie has been meticulously constructed to the point that, you know, I, I just feel like she is it, it's like it's like though as if like she feels that she has something to prove Rebecca Hall with this movie being her directorial debut, having this already established acting career. And she just went all out with this. And and when I say all out, I mean, like, really meticulously going through every single element that she possibly could in the production and post-production process uh, to ensure that what we got from this was a very layered, emotional, and thought-provoking experience. And I think it's one that does hold up on repeat viewings, especially uh, for all the reasons that you guys are saying before, um, literary foreshadowing, uh, these performances are captivating to watch as well. And at the end of the day, it's also uh, beautiful, beautiful to look at. So for final thoughts on Passing, uh, Eve O'Day, we'll start off with you here. Uh, what final thoughts do you have for Passing? Well, we've already sort of touched on sort of speculation about what are the exact details of Irene and Claire's relationship. I personally read it as Irene at least is probably experiencing some physical and romantic attraction towards Claire. And that just got me thinking of another uh, New York based film. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar. Par uh, Paris is burning in which mm. one of the major themes of that film is the term realness which in this case refers to uh trans individuals who kind of have the goal of being able to go outside and pass as a cisgender person um that obviously is still a factor in a lot of people's lives i think we have a lot more we have much different language now to sort of have that discussion but that's just a i think there's just so many nuances in this film that you know the term passing is obviously most overtly referring to passing for white but there's just so much more there's so much more depth to this film there's passing as a perfect mother passing as a perfect wife and in Irene's case I would say passing as straight and I would I just am so excited for more people to see this movie because I just think it's an absolute knockout all right uh Kafia. Final thoughts? Uh, anything you want to reiterate for passing? I mean, I think for Rebecca, this movie—the reason why this movie is works—is because she. It's it's kind of like her story. It's her mother's story. It's her grandfather's story, and it's a, one of the reasons why this she 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 kind of gets this. You know, I think also as she's doing the press tour. This movie also has been a healing point for her family because they weren't talking about it. Her mother had no sense of, of, of her ancestry because her father just cut things off. So I think this the reason why it works also is because as Rebecca was making this, it also became a healing tool for her own story and for her own being and her being more comfortable saying yes. 
I am a woman that of African descent, even though I don't look it. And um, she's more comfortable in saying, you know, I hope this challenges people in what they deem what blackness is. Also, the bigger picture, which is, I think, the part I don't want people to forget the reason why these women passed. If we didn't have racism or we didn't have a system of white supremacy, then people of color wouldn't feel the need to say, in order for me to have the things that I'm supposed to have as a human, I have to be closer to whiteness because me going to the world as myself is not good enough. And I think that's been missing in a lot of our discussions and a lot of our writings. You know, yes, it's a beautiful film, but at the heart of it is these two women, one of these women made a choice because she knew her life would be easier. She was going to get access to things that the other woman doesn't have. It's crazy how much that can be applied to stuff that's going on with today. Uh, you were mentioning earlier, Kafia, that this is something that is happening every single day but it's not it's not talked about no we don't we're we're skirting around it with the harder they fall and i love the harder they fall but the whole thing with sassy Betts character it it is something where hollywood is still i mean we look at in casting we've all seen a lot of movies it's very like viola davis is a very rare thing to see a dark skinned mm-hmm. woman over 50 playing leads getting to have a love interest because she's not deemed attractive by Hollywood standards. And, you know, whereas Hallie will talk about, you know, they always want me to play pretty. She doesn't, she gets the opposite effect. They don't think she can play anything, but because all they see are her looks Mm. or what they think people are comfortable with. So it's definitely something that, you know, is still very much front and center. Lauren LaMagna, final thoughts? Anything you want to reiterate? Yeah. I just want to also talk about, um, I know we talked about the acting of Tessa and um, Ruth Naga individually, but I think their chemistry together is so great and apparent, especially considering that they're doing, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to acting. One's very external and colorful, one's very internal. And I just think that they both radiate off of each other very well, that I really enjoyed watching their scenes together where, you know, one's probably doing a lot more dialogue than the other and they just get to bounce off each other. And I will also state that um, in the first like opening section of the film, um, Tessa Thompson does um, when she like bows her head and she's kind of mimicking the cover of the original novel, which I thought was a really awesome nod that I'm assuming Rebecca Hall was like very actively aware of where when she would just sit and like bow her head that it is the exact cover. And I think that's a really cool, you know, like copy paste moment of like, you know, a cute little Easter egg. But yeah, it's a, a wonderful like little piece of you know visual poetry and you can get so much out of it and i'm really glad that um rebecca hall had a really good adaptation because you could tell that this piece means a lot to her and she probably worked you know many many years writing this and rewriting this and trying to get this piece made and you you could feel the passion and the love within it and nicole ackman yeah so i think that the movie for me at least and i know some other people have said this too does still have some pacing issues uh it it is a very slow movie which i think because it's also a very quiet movie can make it easy to sort of become a little bit disengaged in the middle of it but at the same time the performances are just absolutely phenomenal like i said before rusnega is fantastic but 
Tessa Thompson, I think, really deserves more praise for how great she is in this and the really nuanced work that she's doing. I also want to shout out that the costumes in this are really gorgeous. Um, they, they look really nice, even in the black and white. Uh, and that the all of the, the production design is also fantastic. Like the way that they sort of recreated late 1920s early 1930s New York City, I think is really lovely. $10 million budget. Which is insane. <laughs> it's insane. Why was the budget? That they were again? able to do. $10 million. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The costumes. For a period film, that is insane. That's just insane, like, that they were able to do that much with that budget. And I also just want to also reiterate again that I think that the decision to make the film in black and white had a lot of, you know, really good sort of... Uh, logistical things that they were able to achieve with it in terms of how they were lighting people, what they could do to, you know, make both of these actresses look lighter or darker in certain scenes. But I also think that it fits with the theme of the movie so well and the topics that it addresses that it really is like a very inspired choice to, to do that. So I think that above all, this is a really, really promising debut from Rebecca Hall. And I'm so excited to, you know, see what she goes on to to continue to do in her career as a director and as a writer. I co-signed that. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I had a conversation with Rebecca Hall, which will go up in uh, probably like a day after this uh, review goes up, where she's always wanted to direct. And she, I, I, fe- I could feel that in this movie. I can feel that passion really coming through. It also helps, too, that it's something that's very deeply personal to her. And, you know, I remember so distinctly before this film premiered at Sundance, so many people were worried about how this subject material was going to be handled. And the reactions out of Sundance were a little tepid because I do think that some people were still wrestling with it a bit because it is very complex and it is something that unless if you have done your research and, you know, let's face it, some of us, even when you do research, you know, it's better to just, you know, take a sip back and listen to whatever people have to say on the matter who know more about it than you ever will. Um, I, I feel though that as time has gone on and if you allow yourself to revisit it, hear some of those interpretations, read some of the writings that have been put out there by people of color, especially. Um, it is a film that can reveal itself in more layered ways than uh, most films I, I've seen this uh, past year have been able to do. And because of that, I, I you know, it's one of the few films I've seen this year that upon rewatches, uh, actually my score has bumped up. I am going to give Passing... An 8 out of 10, I think, is one of the strongest directorial debuts that I've seen this year. And like Nicole, I, too, cannot wait to see what what Rebecca Hall gives us next. Kafia, what would you give passing? I give it a 9 because I think it's such an important subject matter. And I hope it opens up the conversation for families that have been keeping the secret to reconnect or at least try to reconnect. And I think for others to examine how, you know, people are still forced and not allowed to be themselves. And I can't wait to see what else Rebecca will make. Eve O'Day, what about you? Ten. No. Really? Yeah. Good for you. Thank you. Nice. (laughs) I told you I really liked it. We love seeing tens. Nicole? I am also at an eight. 
And Lauren LaMagna. I am also at an eight as well. Can I ask, has anyone seen any of the, or either of the Imitation of Life films? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't help but think of the the original one with, with Claudette Colbert and Louise Beavers in, I just couldn't help but, you know, I think yes. that's... Comparisons are pretty obvious. They're obviously, <laughs> they're very different, but they also have that similar theme. I th- uh, I would recommend that original film. It's from 1930, let me just see, 1934. It will certainly not live up to modern scrutiny in terms of its sensitivity, but I, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of capsule of how Hollywood felt it had its position to deal with race at, um in that time period well there you go you have a companion uh, piece for a double feature now yeah, well double feature <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. all right now in terms of awards potential for passing uh it's interesting because obviously right now critics haven't chimed in yet with the precursors although they will in a couple of days uh i've been pretty firm ever since i saw the film at sundance that i knew with confidence that Ruth Nega would be in the supporting actress conversation being a previous nominee. Um, I think this is definitely a role that stands out in that extroverted way, as we were saying earlier, which does make things a little bit more difficult for Tessa Thompson. But, you know, she's been doing such consistent work over the last couple of years. And I do think that at some point, people are going to have to recognize that she's been delivering consistently phenomenal work. Uh, I've never seen her deliver a bad performance yet. So I I would argue that she's also in the best actress conversation. And then from there, adapted screenplay, cinematography. I I don't know how I feel about picture yet. That's like to be decided because Netflix just has so many contenders and they might go for bigger flashier films with you know the like the, the big casts and, and things of that nature but I, I would say the others that I mentioned there the other four are looking pretty sturdy right now I would say for me it is I'm saying four nominations mm-hmm. saying best adapted screenplay mm-hmm. I think she totally deserves to be honestly if we really had if the men would stop blocking the women in the DGA and stop putting them in the in the um, consolation category, which is first time director. Ruth and Jane would be shoe ins for best director nomination if the men step up and do the right thing. But I don't have confidence in the DGA like that. No, I mean Rebecca Hall's assured that first time slot, but I agree with you. I don't think that they're going to dual nominate her in both categories either. Unfortunately, no. But I do think she is going to be. Uh, she's going to be in um, Best Adapted Screenplay. I yeah. think costuming. I wouldn't be surprised if it sneaks in there for cinematography because it's beautifully shot. And um, I personally think this is my pet peeve with the whole nomination thing, especially when it comes to black women. In honesty, they're co-leads. They both should be submitted for best actress but because the academy being what the academy is and doesn't do right by black women one of them has to step down in this particular case is ruth but i do think that tessa very much deserves i believe tessa deserves to be in in the five can can i can i i want to say something about that really quick because i agree kefia what you're saying in regards to black women being embraced by the academy 
I will agree with you on that standpoint. Where I will disagree with you on the category placement is we never see any scenes exclusively from Claire's perspective. It's always from Irene's perspective of Claire. So I would argue that Irene really is the lead and Claire is the supporting character in Claire in Irene's story. I think so too, Matt. I think yeah. Ruth is in a supporting role. Both of them absolutely deserve to have their performances recognized to the highest degree. But I do see the distinction between lead and supporting. I also think that uh, the supporting actress category is a little bit more open right now. I think that like, I, I think that Ruth is definitely going to get in there. And I think that they're also probably just trying to keep mm-hmm. them out of each other's way by putting one in one category and one in and the I other. Wouldn't, yeah, and I wouldn't even say that what is Ruth's like upper hand is that she's in the supporting category. I would just say it's the way the character is written and the what demands of this character. It is an extroverted role and that is what the Academy goes for. And, and she's a former me. nominee. And she's a former nominee and she got a former nominee on an internal performance. So that is rare. So we're seeing her do something different now. And um, you guys know me, people of the podcast know me. Subtle acting in film is my favorite form of acting in film. I am being fed beautifully within the performances by particularly women in film and television this year. Great subtle performances all around. Love it. Um, I think it'll be, I really want Tessa Thompson to get in because I think she's oh so fantastic in letting us see her mind unravel and be paranoid and think and fear and question. I love seeing that within the film medium because it's just, it shows such confidence in the medium is such a pro that you could get in film to see that mind think. The issue that I'm seeing is that we already have a semi-internal performance in Best Actress, which is Kristen Stewart and Spencer, and we don't see more than one usually in a category. If there's going to be an internal performance, there's usually one, and I don't see the Academy normally doing both, which pains me because, again, it's my favorite type of acting within film. But normally, if there is one, it really just is one. And if that one is right now kind of a front runner, it's going to be harder, I think, for Tessa to get in. But I hope Netflix pushes her as much as they're going to push Rue. Yeah, but that's the problem, though. That is, and it also is how we write about this. You know, we don't write when it comes to women of color. We don't give them the same love. We always other them. And this is why it's been 20 years since Halle Berry was and is still the only black woman or woman of color to have won for best actress. And then everybody wants to write write 18 million pieces on when black women don't get nominated or when black women. um, Why has it been 20 years? And this is why I always say it's not going to happen within my lifetime, because in order for it to happen, we, the media, have to do a better chance to say, hey. These are all the women that should be not to be considered for best actress. Point blank, period. Who cares about the front? These are all your candidates. I sometimes wish we were a little bit more like sports, where you say, these are all the men that have the chance to win the gold medal on the 100 meters. And this is why. But we always do the, I feel like when we say that, we give the academy an excuse to be horrible. And we need to stop doing that. Because why are we giving and and then we write these excuse pieces instead of writing when are you going to do the right thing i think that and if i may because i i too have had to wrestle with this a lot where i've really taken on the form of prediction does not equal advocacy 
because I'm so tired of getting my heart broken. <laughs> and so, I, I, admittedly, I try my best to predict what they're going to do, even if based on their past trends. And I would rather be delightfully surprised that they buck those past trends and then they do something that I wouldn't expect them to do. Because if I put my hopes and dreams onto them doing what I wanted them to do all the time, I'm going to just be in a perpetual state of depression, you know, because to your point, Kefia, they they fuck up more than they get it right. I mean, yeah, (laughs) my personal ballot and my predictions never look all that similar but i but but it's interesting though because like for me i think what it boils down to more so than anything is it boils down to something that i know we talk about a lot but it needs to keep getting brought up and that is opportunity so there are all these opportunities of roles being written to be played by white actresses in supporting in lead all these flashy biopic roles and so on and so forth uh, but you don't often see roles being wit- written for women of color to get these showcase performances, these extroverted performances, these biopics or whatever. A- anything that we say, oh, these are the trends that the Academy goes for. And and then when they do, something something happens that is like, uh, like something else happens. You know, Kathia, we talked about Respect earlier this year, Jennifer Hudson, right? Mm-hmm. And the studio released that film, in my opinion, way too early. Like, she's, like, completely forgotten about at this point. And if they had held on to that later on, she could possibly be at the forefront of people's minds more. And it's like, there was a role that was given for her, a great opportunity. She knocked it out of the park, did a great job with it. And something else had to come along to mess it up. And now we're writing pieces, like you're saying, about how, well, nobody remembers respect. And it's like, it's very rare that I see it happen for uh, women of color in Hollywood in the Oscar conversation where the stars just completely align. Right timing, right role, the right reactions from critics and audiences, like everything just lines up. And the reason why it's rare is because there aren't many opportunities to get into the batter's box to even try. And that's the, that's the sad part. It's also advocacy... I think white actresses have to do a better job of when, you know, when they talk about salary disparity, acknowledge the Uh fact that you're still getting paid more than, you know, black women that have richer um, resumes. I mean, we're talking about Anjana Ellis. Anjana Ellis has been great for over 20 years. People are just now discovering her. We're talking about Angela Bassett had to come to TV to get her money right. I mean, uh-huh. it's just it's it's that type of thing where white actresses have to be better allies because black women are always showing up for these rallies, uh, the Me Too, the Times Up, whatever the thing is, and then they're always there for the Photoshop. But when it comes time, you know, Jessica Chastain is one of the few women that said, "Okay, I'm making a movie with a black woman. You need to run her her money." Where is Meryl Streep on this? Where are all these other women? You know, Emma Stone has an Oscar, has an Oscar for Best Actress by Viola Davis doesn't, and they were in a whole damn movie together. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, it has to be better. And and again, it's what you're saying. The opportunities have to be there. Be and it's also like, why is it that you know the only like yeah somebody said I think Robert said it. The Academy literally said they like Lupita Leon go 
better as a slave than her playing in a horror movie. Like, what does that say to, to these actresses? So, you know, not to go off on the tangent, but it is something that I look at every award season and, and I contribute to a black newspaper. And that's a question that, that we get asked to write about the arts. Why, what does black woman got to do to get an Academy Award for black actors? I don't even know what the conversation looks like for an Asian woman or a Latina woman. They keep trying to make Penelope Cruz Latina. And it's like, no, it's just, it's a conversation I feel like we need to have. Is it, does it help that there are people of color, more people of color in the voting body? But it just is the studios, everybody put up their little black square and everybody put up the little hashtag and then went right back to doing what they're doing. It just needs to be better. There's no more excuses for this mess. And it's funny because I remember having a Twitter conversation with you a few weeks ago, I think it was, where uh, it was about Tessa. And it was about her in the Best Actress race. And I said something to the effect of, I don't really see it happening right now. You know, there's plenty of time. We'll We'll see what happens in the weeks ahead. Here we are now, a few weeks ahead, People are seeing the movie and one of the continuous uh, reactions that I'm seeing on social media in written pieces on Reddit, everything is I know Ruth Neg has got the buzz, but Tessa Thompson is equally great, if not better. And if that can continue and if critics groups, especially when we get to end of year uh, awards voting can mention her enough times uh, that is th- that is the momentum that we'll need to see to 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 get her like oh to the next line, which is essentially in that best actress conversation uh, amongst Academy voters. Uh, but if critics don't show up for Tessa, if Tessa does not get mentions from the critics groups in the next couple of weeks, uh, I, I fear that Academy voters are going to just have their minds made up about Ruth and they won't even give Tessa a second look. And it's just like, I hate to boil it down to like such a sim- simple like way of looking at things. But it's like, I, like I said earlier, it's like I do this for my own protection, because if I get my hopes up too much about it, like it's I don't, it just hurts after a while. And I, I, I can't even imagine, Kathy, like, you know, the hurt that you, you must you must have feel too. I don't even come up with an excuse anymore. Yeah. I, I'm just at the point like you, when you sit down with these and it's the same thing. Stop asking. And the other thing is, as journalists, stop asking the black people how to do it better. Or people of color, period. We're only 12% of the population. We don't control any of this mess. I mean, other than Tyler Perry, everybody else is a working hand for hire. You still have to go through another system. So it's time to talk, have these uncomfortable conversations and say, certain directors that have never hired talent of color. Why don't yeah. you, well, you've made 60 million pictures in New York. You've never hired an actor of color. What's up with that? Yeah. Little things, little things like that can just change perceptions, start trends, and we can have a whole new world ahead of us. Absolutely. But I'm still team Tessa. Oh, I am saying, yeah. I would love it if Netflix brought them, like Netflix is going to campaign Ruth 100%. They should have Tessa with her at every single convention Ruth is at. They shouldn't be separated, in my opinion. And if they do, that's messed up on them. I, I want them together at everything. She will be on my ballot for my awards group. I can tell you that much. <laughs> and I will say that Netflix hat. One thing about Netflix, unlike some of these other studios, they know how to campaign. And all the interviews 
uh, the stuff they did with us for Critics' Choice, Ruth and, and Tessa were sitting together. Always. Yep. They're always presented together. Good. The, the book that they do, that the magazine that they do, they were photographed beautifully together. It's been team them against the world. So I think we're seeing that. If people aren't get, catching that vibe, then they're blind. But I, the one thing I do have is confidence in that that awards team. I, I agree with that. Um, my, my big problem sometimes with them is I get worried about how many contenders they have. Uh, and because then it just becomes a matter of who's going to get prioritized and who's going to get the most uh, FaceTime with Academy voters. Uh, that That's always a little bit of a concern for me with them. But I, I agree. They've got a lot of power and they've got a lot of might. And if they want to will something, they're going to find a way to do it. And that is why I still feel very confident about this film getting at a bare minimum, bare minimum, adapted screenplay and supporting actress. Which is so annoying to me because I think you're right. But if you're just, I just like, because I'm just <laughs> this film and it's so well done. It's so, the craftsmanship is just expert level, expe- especially considering that it's a first time director. It should be the front. I mean, okay, I haven't seen every film this from this year. It should be absolutely in the conversation for best cinematography, not just because it's in black and white, but because the way it uses black and white is so intelligent and so smart. It should be in the conversation for costumes because I, I know a thing or two about, about clothing from that era. And it was, it was perfect. It, I had no notes, no, no, nothing to complain about. And it just, and she should win. She should be nominated for best director. Like it, it's just so frustrating knowing that this isn't going to happen for so many unfortunate reasons. Oh, I don't want to end things on a dour note here. Sorry. But. <laughs> yeah, as women every year, we're like, fellas, do the right thing. Uh, and, they, mm. and the guys are like, you know, oh. and, you know, like, just having hung out with Jane this weekend, who is lovely and made well, I was a wondering freaking who you were talking about. Jane Campion. Jane Campion. <laughs> okay, yeah. I was like, talking about you know i'm looking at her i'm looking at rebecca and you're like you guys make beautiful art but your guild lets you down and julie ducano and you know, yeah celine sam obviously shouldn't be should have be, been nominated for portrait of Lady on fire eh, we, we could go on we have a whole podcast yeah. about this but on the upside i am glad exactly what matt said that they released this at a perfect time and where the buzz is and they're, they're getting them, you know, in front of the right people. And also Rebecca is been on it. She's, she, I think she was at just about every major film festival, fall yep. film festival. No, she's mm-hmm. been front and center. Uh, she's been out talking to everybody she possibly can about this. And why not? You know, she wrote it. She directed it. It's her first film. And it's good. Uh, I would want to be anywhere and everywhere yeah, promoting this thing as well. So we'll see how far it goes in the weeks ahead. This has been a really, really great conversation all overall. And Kefia, I really appreciate having you here today with us. Please tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the Internet. You can find me uh, under Katia, K-A-T-H-I-A underscore Woods. And you can find more of my writing at the Philadelphia Tribune and cupofsoulshow.com. Nicole Ackman, where can they find you on the internet? 
You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Nicole Ackman 16. Lauren LaMagna. You guys can find me on the Twitter at Lauren Lamango. Evo Day. I have so many more positive things to say about this film, and you can find me probably talking about them on my Twitter at Eve on Film. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of Passing here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.